to More Real, a podcast about real people for real people. I wanted to create a space where I share my true feelings and those of my guests about what it's like to live in today's world. The challenges we face and how we deal with them, or don't. What about all that stuff that's just not said but should be? You know, the conversations that we really want to have but don't. What do we really think and feel? What about our regrets, the dreams that we have and the stuff we should be doing but we don't? Each week, I'll be here talking to real people about real life. This is a very honest look at life and hopefully by listening it will help you to have a better understanding of yours. This was a very real experience discussing with Asha so many important aspects of life. This episode will help you to understand what it is to be a man and how a man thinks, acts and behaves. In my opinion, if you truly listen then you'll gain an insight into how to be the best version of you. Asha is an amazing person with such an incredible perspective on life. A very learned man who has been through traumatic experiences, including his sister taking her life, his mother taking her life, and being diagnosed with an incurable blood cancer. All of this happened in a relatively short space of time, and ultimately was too much to handle, and resulted in Asha having a nervous breakdown. In tragedy, there is knowledge and wisdom to help guide you through your life. As a result of these terrible experiences, Asher found his true calling and completely changed the way he lived his life and saw himself. His profound awakening resulted in him wanting to share his experience and help others. We talk about meditation, men's groups, dealing with and talking about death, listening to your inner child, the Wim Hof Method, getting out into nature, spirituality, and having compassion for others. I truly hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. So I might start with a, tends to be a deep question. As a child, who did you believe you were? Wow, that is a a deep question to start with, Dan. And and why did you believe that about yourself? Uh, What age are we talking about here? Maybe as early as you can remember. Yeah. That's not so specific. I'm just... Yeah. What did you... You know, pick, it, pick an age and if that helps. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny that my mind goes directly to my, I guess, kind of 12, 13, when I was basically alive to play tennis. So, that, so I guess there's a very strong period of time in my mind that I go straight back to if I'm asked that question. That was when, you know, I literally eat, slept breathed to play tennis and I really didn't see anything outside of that being the arc of my life you know just following tennis and to 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 wherever that took me so very strong imprint in my childhood around getting up early and you know playing tennis before school after school during school and traveling around the country playing in junior tournaments and how did you see yourself? Were you a confident? Were you shy? Were you what, what kind of child were you? And what did you that? How did that manifest itself in your life? I was good in social situations, but I think behind all that and through my life, this has been there's been a dark passenger of anxiety and depression, and I think that kicked in 
I couldn't tell you exactly when it kicked in, but it's it's part of my earliest memories as a as a young young boy, probably around the same age. So it's interesting. Here I am talking about outwardly, you know, there's this kid who's following his tennis dream. Inwardly, there's a kid with acute anxiety and depression. How did that manifest itself? Were you just you said you were sociable, but yeah, you, did you, so I, I did was... you struggle with I don't know? Did you worry about what people thought of you and said and stuff like that or not? I mean. I don't... I, it wasn't so much what people, perhaps it was, you know, what, what impression I was making in people. But to me, time alone was time that I turned inwards and found that anxiety and, and depression there, which is something that has run in my family, particularly down through the, the females, it's been most obvious. But I, I clearly picked that up from a very early age. So I think it was, you know, all of the above. I mean, yeah, you know, I was concerned about how, how what people thought of me, I was particularly, I guess, around my own self-worth. And having a fairly strict father who kind of put a lot of pressure on, on you to perform at very high levels and, and feeling like he could never do enough to get his blessing or his, his, his approval probably made you feel a little bit more like a failure. So there was lots of different elements at play. But for me, yeah, there was definitely, you know, what I call my dark passenger on my shoulder, which has been there through my life. I mean, if you look at my story, which I'm sure we'll get into, there's been a, a storyline of, of that throughout but it started early definitely started early and feeling different you know that idea where I just felt like I didn't belong anywhere particularly so yeah it kind of and where did in your family you've got a you had a sister mm. do you have any other siblings no no just a, a younger sister and so it's interesting because I'm a middle child so I always felt like I didn't belong in my family at all I was different to the others you just felt you were different? Was there any way you could identify now? Like, how did you think you were different? Nothing tangible. No. It was just a, yeah, a, a feeling like I, I didn't really fit into any particular box. I felt like my thinking was, was different and, you know, I felt like I looked different because of my height. So really, I'm over six foot six. And so, and that was from an early age, I was very tall. So in terms of average, so yeah, I guess, you know, physically, mentally, all of it, I, I felt a step to one side of, 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 of my peers. Maybe that was part of it, yeah. And you, went, you talked about your father. Was mm. he, in terms of a role model, how was he for you? You said he had put pressure on you and, and he was strict and you never felt like you were good enough. And yeah. Was he always like that? Or? He, I mean, as, as far as I can remember, he came out of the, the Navy. He was a military guy and I think a lot of that was how he grew up. He went to the Navy when he was a, a boy, basically. He was schooled at sea. So he was very set, you know, in, in those military ways, which I think rubbed off a great deal on, on the family structure and, and how that worked. So, yeah. And what would you say you learned from him? Well, I guess I learned that, that, that military precision, I guess, and always pushing yourself f for more. You know, I could also say that there were certain traits in my father that how I learned in terms of how I didn't want to show up in the world. And so there's learning in that way as well. Because out of discomfort, there's obviously great learning and great growth. So it wasn't particularly role modeling what he did, but sometimes it was observing what he did. Yeah. And so, and how did your mother compliment him, if, given what you've just said, he, how he was? Was she completely different to him in that? Yeah, different. Very different, yeah. Mum was quite neurotic and, and a worrier. 
which comes, I'm certain, from her Jewish lineage, <laughs> of which I've definitely picked up quite a bit, as, as we talked about earlier on. So, yeah, you, you couldn't get two more different people. Mum was quite spiritual, you know, into her Kundalini yoga, in fact, and all the other bits and pieces, and she saw life through an extraordinarily different lens from my father. But I think that mix, you know, I guess that's quite interesting for a young child because you get to see two ways of looking at the world. Mm. So if you so you tell me how you were as a child and, mm. and how you saw yourself, how would what would you who would you say you are now compared to that child? How how different are you now? Oh, completely different. I think events in my life have transpired. I think the universe kind of shows you the way if you let it a little bit. So I sort of feel like I spent the first half of my life pursuing a certain direction in life and then being slapped around the the chops a few times by the universe and kind of moving into a completely different trajectory in the second half. Like early, my, the first part of my life was all around external success. It was all around, uh, you know, a, a corporate job and working my way up through, you know, promotions and bigger salaries and bigger houses and big, better cars and all that. But I always fought against the tide. Like I felt like I was being drawn down that path and it seemed to be the only model that society and my, and, 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 and my dad had given me for, for happiness or success. But the more I went down that path, the more uncomfortable I became with it. But I didn't know anything else. So I just kept going in the pursuit that, oh, well, maybe more, will some, something will click and all of a sudden it'll all make sense to me. As it turned out, it didn't. And, you know, I had a number of life events which, which opened my eyes quite a lot and showed me my true calling. What do you really connect with then? It's a more spiritual way of being than it was prior to those events happening. And I think at the end of the day, it all boils down to the common language of love. You know, the, the realest thing in the world to me is, is the love we have in our heart. And I think that connects everybody, everything will guide your way. It's, it's, the, it's the path to follow. And is that because you didn't have that so much as a child and now you do have that that that's you can see how important that is to you yeah quite possibly i think i had to a large degree closed my heart off to feeling my feelings in the early part of my life and i was just kind of going about my business in almost a robotic fashion and i think that is reflected in my relationships intimate but also friends and family but and, and most particularly my relationship with myself and i think yeah, you know, going through the experiences that I went that I went through at around the age of forty or so, just just cracked my heart open, like took me to the depths of my dark depths in a way. But it was from that place that I was able to see what really mattered to me. I was able to open my heart up and, you know, to a degree at that point, let a lot of pain in, but also let that show me the way. And do you think that as awful as that would have been? That, that happened for a reason those things is there some part of you that reconciles what happened for a reason yes i'll go into that a bit because i people say oh everything happens for a reason right i don't buy that but i think that we give it a reason that's what keeps us going you know it's what we choose to decide to, 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 to it's what we choose the reason to be that's important so, you know, event A happens. If I can choose to give it a reason, which then turns into growth and lessons learned and helps me to move forward. But I don't necessarily think that there's a, you know, a default reason in it. It's up to you to make it so. Otherwise, it's sort of quote-unquote potentially, you know, for nothing. 
going back to the, what I said to you is real and what does that mean to you, why would you say you're, you're here? On the planet yeah. or, or in this room? <laughs> <laughs> not in this room. Yeah. What's what well, you know? I mean, I guess that would have changed because you told me what it was like as a, what you thought your role was as a child, and going into early adult and adult in terms of that path you were told that you should go down. Mm. And a lot of us are told in this societal construct we should follow this path of yeah. job and house and money and car yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Why do you, if you look at who you are now, mm. why do you think you're here? What's your role in life? What do you? What, what, what's what's your purpose? At completely to be of service to other people and help them to shine and I can do that through many different ways through holding space for them and allowing them to be seen and heard but also through sharing my experiences in the hope that that can help people along their own way but you know, what drives me on absolutely 100% now is to be of benefit to others mm. and I do that through 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 love and would you therefore describe yourself, do you think you've always been a giver? So you like to give to people? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Like, in the last 10 years, yes. But the previous 40, not at all. And then, so how do you think, is that part of what you've said before, is your journey then? So how do you think you've gone from somebody, and the reason why I ask the question is, I describe myself as an unconditional giver. Mm. I will give you everything that I can. Mm. And I've always been like that. But if you're saying you weren't, and then you became, and I can understand why, but that's not weird, but that's, that sounds, <laughs> that sounds alien to me because that's not who I am, I think. Yeah, no, I, I get that. No, I grew up trying to, you know, I, I, basically suck the marrow out of life for, for myself. I think that was just the, the conditions that I, I, I grew up in. It was, I guess, maybe some of the, the lessons that I was learning from everyone around me. But yeah, it was all about, you know, get what you can and, and build a big pile of stuff and you know very materialistic view of life and I think that's probably the easiest way to describe it that the first part of my journey was was, was materialistic and the other I've moved now into a more spiritual path which is the other way um, I think it was always there in me I just wasn't able to access it there was a, a, a turning point and you needed I needed to kind of plumb the depth of depths of my being in order to find that and be, be, be cracked open so that I could you know truly see and do you struggle with how you were then compared to how you are? And there's not and there's no purpose to look back at what, mm -hmm. what was, but is there any part of you that goes, I look at how you are now and what you just described to me, and then compare yourself to the, uh, that other person and go, God, I can't believe I was like that. I, I, I'm really trying to do my best to not compare, either to previous versions of myself or to, or to others around me or whatever. But having said that, you know, it's not a perfect journey. And absolutely, sometimes I look back and there's some grief and there's some some other emotions attached to maybe how I hurt people or things that I did or things that I said or, or ways that I was in the, were in the world but at the same time you know for the most part I've, I've, I've let that go I've surrendered to it's part of the journey you know I needed that to happen in order to get to where I am now I've forgiven myself and and forgiven others around me so but not a, it's not a perfect practice of course you you can get triggered into into churning some of that stuff up and you continue to work on it and talking of feeling and how would you connect how do you connect with your feelings a, a lot through my practices my med meditation practices i was just talking about this the other day actually but directly directly sometimes uh, if i'm feeling certain feelings I'll, I'll name them i'll label them and i'll allow them to have a voice and i can do that in meditation so if i'm feeling 
anger or let's say an emotion like that, which is very strong, you can be present with that just by allowing that voice to come through and give it the stage for five minutes in meditation and allow it to just be heard uninterrupted, Peter's out. I don't understand that. So tell me, how does that work? Then how do you do what you've just said? What does that look like? Yeah, well, a friend of mine actually called it as a similar practice, his Jedi Council. So, <laughs> you know, if you like label, if there's four or five very strong emotions that are coming through, you know, some of them could be love too, or, or forgiveness or whatever, but you literally just allow, almost like hearing from them, like, 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 like identifying them and allowing them to come through. So let's hear from love for the, you know, until love runs out of things to say about a particular situation. And it often, often, it often works around something you're ruminating on or something which is, is, is throwing you off your centre. So you go, all right, well, I'm just going to go into it. Name the major emotions which are at play around this particular event or experience or story and then let them have the floor so that you're not crowding, you know, your mind often gets crowded with four or five different emotions at once, all, all clamouring for attention and shouting at you and you get pulled in lots of different directions. And in the end, you're not really hearing from any of them in full and you're not able to make sense of the process. So this is the idea of like everybody else quieten down, we're hearing from anger and you just allow it to run its course and you, you, but, and then move on to the next one and in that way you get a lot of clarity around what's going on for you internally. Sounds amazing. Mm. So it's almost like kind of, you know, I've heard this before in meditation where you let things pass, just pass by. It's like standing at a train station and the train and that's kind of what you're saying in terms of an emotion. This emotion's coming here now. Yep. I let it come in. I yep. let it sit there, and then I let it just pass on. And and more than more than sitting with its feelings, almost like inviting to hear from it. Like what has what has love got to say about this situation, and and just actively letting that play out. And give me an example of something that you've where you've done that. Say it was anger. You've sat with it. You've been with it, and then how that after you've you, you've been with it, mm. that's then changed something that you were going to do or thought or an incident or a person or something it may not be action oriented in the end but it sort of brings you back to just a center clarity and often you'll break that state of, of ruminating all the time because you sort of get a clearer understanding of, of, of the bigger picture and quite often you know what i've found is you know once you once you bring rejuvenating emotions like love and appreciation and gratitude into the picture they tend to kind of be the ones that you end up rolling with so let's say you know if, if I've been triggered by something my father said or something like that and so I get home I'm like oh man it's like churning on my gears and bringing up stuff from my childhood and doing all the stuff when I go through this process what I often find is those is those rejuvenating emotions when they come in and they get to sit and have their voice when the other ones aren't, aren't you know banging the pans in the background mm. that they're the ones that kind of bring me back to my center mm. Um, but you can't hear them through the noise of all the other bits and pieces that are going on. So that's why this process is, well, at least for me, it works really well. Yeah. And how would you say you, you express your feelings? And who do you express them typically to? Oh, that, that's so based on scenarios. I'm, yeah. try, I'm trying to think about... Are there people, how, are there go-to peoples in your life, I suppose? Oh, there definitely is. And you know, I'm sure we'll get into this as, we, as, as the conversation unfolds. But, you know, I run men's groups for example yeah. and and within that group there's a there's a lovely outlet for for sharing 
what's going on with you. So that's certainly one platform. And, and you know, I've been running those groups for upwards of two years now. And so some of those men have been, we've been together for that entire period. So, you know, the ability to kind of once a week sit down and feel safe and heard and, and to be able to share what's going on for you in an environment where you know you're loved, where you know you're safe. It gives you the ability to be brave, be vulnerable and, and share that way. So I've got that group, you know, I've also got other, you know, dear friends in my life that I can turn to, family members, so forth. So, and I'm much, much better than I was about, about my solitude and, and being able to work through stuff on my own. Like I'm a good listener for myself now, whereas previously I wasn't. The inner critic, the inner voice would just be at me the whole time telling me that I'm not good enough or that I needed to do this and do that or I shouldn't have done that. And now I'm much better at kind of fathering myself. Yeah, well... Not to be relying on other people to, to give you... I'm not saying that's... Because that's got a place and I mm. totally identify I'm in a men's group as well, so I get the power of mm. being in that space. Mm. But to be able to sit with your own thoughts mm. and to work through those and to feel comfortable with who you are and where yeah. you're at is yeah. very powerful. I'm big on that. <laughs> like I think that's been a real work in progress for me over the last 10 years. And I think in order to kind of maintain that, that stability, that purpose, any spiritual kind of, any, like making meaning of your existence, for example, I think you've got to be connected to a, some sort of higher source upwards. I mean, call it God, call it whatever you want, but it doesn't, it can play out in many different ways. And going the other way, downwards, grounded, you need to be connected to your inner child. Mm. And I believe that those are the two kind of anchors up and down, which will hold you centered and stable. And so touching on the spirituality, because I'm very fascinated by mm. that. We mentioned that before we started yep. the pod. How, did you, how do you connect to spirituality? What does that mean, if I ask you, what does that mean to you? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting, the work we do here at the Fifth Direction, we have this view of kind of health and well-being sitting around four aspects, your mental health, emotional health, spiritual health and physical health. So you can come in here and you can, you know, you can, you can do your bicep curls. But you can also come in here and meditate and, 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 and do other things to look into those other areas. But obviously, one of those is spiritual. So how do we define that? Well, really, the way I see it is just making meaning of your existence. Like understanding somehow that you're connected to purpose or connected to kind of your values and, um, and a higher self. So that can look like anything, really. You know, it could be a religious practice, but it could have nothing to do with religion. And for me, it, it, yeah, it's just really about kind of being connected to, 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 to a higher source, absolutely. But um, would I call it God? Well, I was going to say, yeah, do, yeah. Is it, is it, is it, does it have some religious significance to you? Or no, not? not overly, like I, not really. I mean, you could call it God, but I'd define it in a very different way because I see God in everything. God just simply being that, that, that connecting energy, I, I guess. I remember Albert Einstein saying, oh, you can see God in your, in your back garden without having to believe in fairies. Or something. See, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm butchering that completely. No, but, but I you, get what you're you saying. Get the, you get the point. Get it's like, it, it's just there. You know, it's, it's our nature. It's our true nature. And going back to the, to the opposite, you said to be grounded. Mm. How do you ground yourself then? Oh, again, through, through, well, literally. I mean, literally, you know, taking my shoes off and, and getting my feet in the dirt, getting back to nature, connecting back to nature and understanding that, you know, me and nature are not separate. You know, I am nature. And feeling into that by literally being out in nature. I've just spent a weekend in La Cola at the Menergy Festival, which is a group of 300 men 
spending four days in a remote location in East Gippsland and coming back from there just feeling so connected and so grounded because, you know, I spent those days in bare feet, you know, in the dirt, in the, in the water of the McAllister River and sitting around a fire until late at night and, you know, I'd come back and i just feel a vividness and an aliveness that, that, that had been missing for a little while and that's, that's grounded, that's literally connecting back to nature and I think all of us, men, women, all of us, we, we yearn for that. Think about it oftentimes in the city, you might spend weeks without getting your feet in the dirt because, you know, you go to work, you wear your shoes, you, you know, you'd like, you're literally so disconnected from nature and, and it's amazing, like we're drawn to that, we yearn for that and it's part of who we are as, as human beings. And I've heard that a lot, that nature is so important and you need to connect with nature because mm. that changes so much about the way that you are as a person in the world. Yeah. And yet so many people don't do that and they don't even think about that. They don't think about that. Um, it's not a conscious thought. Like I, I had to be told by a friend recently, Dan, why don't you, you should go out of the city, go to somewhere and mm. just be in touch with nature. And mm. I'm like, it's so important. It makes such a huge difference to you, your well-being. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good one. And I went and it was profound. Well, it's like I said, it taps into all four of those aspects of wellness. It really, really does. I mean, you understand you get to understand your, your, your meaning a little bit more. But when you think about it, we as human beings, particularly men, we've been at war with nature since day one. You know, if it comes to herbicides and pesticides and fencing off areas and trying to keep certain things out and certain things in, like it's been us against nature, germs, bacteria, like you name it, it's been a fight. And I, and I think that goes against everything that, that we are deep inside like our, our, our true nature isn't it funny that we use the word nature to explain who we really are mm. someone's nature so to turn that around and actually embrace it which is our true calling is is no wonder it makes such a difference to you on every single level i mean you can talk about it from a physiological level just from a point of view of energy we are essentially energetic beings and nature is also energetic so when there's an exchange things happen you know, I, I strongly believe that when we show up in the world, we're simply an energy exchange with our environment. That's all we are. You want to go and have an energy exchange with your environment in the middle of a forest for a few days, that's going to make you feel far better. And you can actually measure that now. So there's a lot of work done with you know, groups like HeartMath in, in the US around what happens when you hug a tree. Things change. You know, the, 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 the signaling between your heart and your brain actually becomes far more coherent. And a lot of stuff happens. So, you know, those tree huggers out there, they were doing it because innately it felt right, but there's actually something physiological going on. It's quite incredible when you look just a little bit under the surface mm. and see yourself as more than just your physical self. And so talking about you to mention men, why do men just they don't do that at all? A lot of men that I would know, my peers, would just see that as just not being important. Well, you know, they do it in their own way. You know, many men, you know, there's golf and fishing and all these things, which is kind of like um, men are innately drawn to those activities because they get, they get to hang out with one another often. And that's kind of one thing which is really important and overlooked in society about men getting together to talk. You know, the women tend to do it innately as part of the, the feminine aspect yep. of the feminine energy. The, the, the masculine's not quite so obvious, but there is a yearning to go and do that get out in the woods with your mates and sit around a campfire and have a couple yeah, of beers. Yeah, true, and, true, and, right. and, and I think what's stopping a lot of that oftentimes is guilt around needing to be home on weekends for families and stuff like that. And, you know, when, when there's an opportunity to go camping with your mates 
fishing for the weekend or whatever, then all of a sudden it's like, how am I going to get this one past the wife? Because there's often a lot of resistance on the other side of the family. It's like, I don't see you all week at work. And then on the weekends, you just bugger off, leave me with the kids, don't talk, all that sort of stuff. So there's pressures coming to, to not do that, which is not inherently, there's no right or wrong here. It's just the way things are set up. So there's all these underlying noise around. It's just easier not to sometimes avoid the fight, avoid the having to push. But, you know, I, I, I look at um, men like Robert Bly, who you might have heard of as the, 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 you know, the men's movement guy from the mm. 80s and 90s, who plays a big role in my life for reasons which might come out, but it's just very personal stuff around that. Um, one of his books pretty much saved my life. He says that, you know, the women should let the men go into the woods because when they come back, they're going to be far better fathers, husbands, you know, and so in essence, it's them going off, but they're doing the work on behalf of everybody, you know. But that comes back to a whole societal construct we've talked about before, where what you just said is true. It's, it's all about my time and, and resentment around, well, okay, you're, mean, you're telling me, not telling me, mm. what you're asking, what you're saying you want to do is going to put more pressure on me, you know, to have to do something that I don't want to do. So there's resentment around, as opposed to, what you said, which is understanding the benefits of doing what that man or yeah. is, is, it's not even a, it's a need. Mm. It's a, an essential part of who they are. That they, that's, that's what a man needs to do. Mm. Yeah, it's true. And, and there's also a lot of, you know, society's view of masculinity at the moment is not particularly um, friendly, shall we say. And, you know, I think there's a lot of skepticism when a man comes home to his wife and says, I'm about to go off for the weekend playing golf with my mates for the weekend, like a lot of women's mind would wander to strippers and all this other stuff, which is probably in most cases, you know, way off the mark, but understandably so because of all this underlying kind of tension, which exists. These are the things that are being pushed into view, mm. I guess. So there, yeah, so much complexity around it, so much complexity. But then I, I'll give you an example, 300 guys, out in the woods for four days just recently. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering what external people might think was going on there. Mm. You know, to be involved in that, it was just a huge celebration of, of big love. And, you know, not a drop of alcohol, no drugs, early to bed, up early in the morning, swimming in the, in the river, getting your cold water therapy and then doing workshops all day on, on how to be a better version of yourself and, and just an enormous amount of, of love in the air and, and men helping each other through that process and listening to their stories and, you know, I, you know, men from all walks of life often carrying a lot of grief and pain and, and wanting to be seen and heard and it was just, it, it's beautiful. But, you know, I wonder, how many people would sort of uh, fully understand that, that that's what will go on if you put 300 men together, you know? Like... You can, people can't see my face, but I'm screwing up going, there's no way people... There's no. not, not everybody, clearly, yeah. but a, a lot of people would be like, there's no way... They wouldn't even understand what you've said happened happened I, I agree i agree they'd be like oh come on they must have been drinking and be whatever yeah whatever and, you know, it wouldn't be whatever yeah. there's a lots of stereotypes that mm. feed into that and mm. i understand to a certain extent why that happens mm. but to understand the importance of what it is to be a man and to connect with other men mm. unless you've had that experience mm. or you've or you've done your research or read stuff mm. you're just not going to 
going to get that. No, I think, you know, m- most men now in society, they haven't had the, the initiation, they haven't had the rites of passage, they've had, they haven't had good role models. You know, all this stuff's missing. So, you know, we got to get it now. Like, I'm in my 50s and, you know, I really didn't start this, this process until I was 40 years old and I was broken. And most men have to get broken in order to actually see what we're talking about, you know. Um, what do you, interesting, why do you think, because again, I spoke to someone the other day who was broken, mm-hmm. very broken, and he said exactly the same thing you did. Yeah. And but why, why do men have to be broken in order to, not always, mm-hmm. but often, you nailed it, because that's mm-hmm. what I'm hearing, and again, I could talk about my own experience and how that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. What, why? Oh, I think they're just so stuck in the wires from like, we're all... I say, I'm being very general when I say we all, but many of us are just wearing a mask and kind of just going through the motions with this, this suit of armour that we wear and just hoping that nothing pierces behind that. And when it does, because we've operated in that way, it's worked most of the time until something gets in behind the armour. And then we've got no defences because we haven't learnt true resilience. We've just learnt the resilience of wearing armour. So as, as long as nothing gets in behind that, then things seem to be okay. You're a little bit numb and you go through life existing not living i would say but you know something gets behind the armor and you've got you've got no practice that inner child is completely defenseless in there because the inner child hasn't grown resilience just the the outer external shell has been stopping the bullets from coming in but you know you lose your job or your wife leaves you or you get a chronic illness or there's an accident or something happens to one of your kids or you know endless events which gets way in behind the armor and the man's got nothing, no defense, no resilience. And so they just crumble. And that's, you know, again, now we can talk about suicide rates in men, why they're so high. And this is sort of playing into that. But it's not talked about. It's not talked about. It's, mm. Like you said, suicide rates in men are is really high. I can't remember again. 75%. Yeah, it's yeah. really high. So, so six men a day in Australia take yeah, their own lives. Yeah, that's right. I think there's someone I've told yeah, that. I was shocked by that. Yeah, and it's 75% of overall suicides. Now, what we do have to remember in that is that Women are far more likely to attempt suicide than men. So okay. men are particularly good at getting the job done, which goes to you know, the masculine energy. We're quite violent in the sense of, or, you know, aggressive, I suppose, as part of the masculine energy, a better word than violence. So I guess if we reach that point of utter despair, we're probably more likely to get the job done. But so I think, you know, I, I agree, we should definitely talk about the men's suicide rates and the big issue there. But I also see it as a human problem in the sense that getting to that point of feeling like you want to end it all is is genderless. Yeah. Mm. But it's it's it goes back to what we we're saying about society. What does that say about society that people that's what's happening? Mm. Where men don't feel like they can, you know, talk to other people and and, and have to, to to, to, to get rid of that mask mm. take away that armour and go well this is just who I am because that is seen as not being a man yeah that means you're, you're yeah, weak yeah. and even men that I know who are in men's group I was, mm. I was talking to him the other day this guy and he said to me oh you know I had this experience and I didn't share with people that I know yeah. about what was really going on because they would think I was weak yeah. and I'm like, you're evolved. I've been in a men's group with you for five years. Mm. And you're saying that to me? Well, this is the interesting point because, you know, I guess what's missing here is being vulnerable is the strongest thing you can do. For me to sit here and I'm not sure what questions are coming next, but if I'm, if I'm going to be honest and I'm going to have to be vulnerable. And to me, that's, that's what other definition is there for strength and to open yourself up like that. To me, it's the difference between 
uh, if we look at the warrior kind of archetype, I guess, it's not Russell Crowe and Gladiator who, you know, with, with, with the steel completely covering up his face, so, you know, the whole lot, it's Tarzan, you know, just a loincloth with an open chest and it's like, here I am. That to me is, is the strength of the true warrior. And, you know, as I said often before, that's what a woman is looking for in a man. Like, you know, as, as a great mentor and friend of mine says, women get, get um, quickly sick of kissing cold, hard steel. Um, you know, and there's a lovely story about, about the knight in rusty armour, you know, whose armour gets stuck on because he's been the, you know, jousting and killing dragons and stuff in his way to woo the woman, the princess. But on the conjugal night, he can't get his armour off and she doesn't know who he is, right? So he becomes broken, goes out into the forest, you know, sits by a lake and wonders what on earth's going on and through, you know, let's call it meditation or contemplation, he eventually prizes the, his helmet off, looks in the lake and sees himself for the very first time, right? And spends time with that and then eventually goes back to the princess and it's a new person and he has to, of course, win her heart back again, but he's doing it from his heart, from, from, from a place of being open and vulnerable and now I understand who I really am. And of course then, the love story unfolds properly. So that, in a nutshell, is what most men are going through in that point where they can't conjugate the relationship because the armor's stuck on is the point of breaking. Yes. And, and then they have to go on a journey, you know, much like Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, to derobe themselves of the armor. And I know from my own experience that being vulnerable, the power that it's given me, mm. the knowledge the, it's truly changed my life because what you get back is incredible if you're in a very safe place in terms of sharing and being vulnerable with somebody else you mentioned before about the mask mm. that people wear mm. forget what you think is going on mm. you've got no idea what's really going no, on no idea those, and all these these ideas and thoughts and what you perceive about a person that you know or you don't know they're just not true until you're vulnerable, until mm. you really reveal yourself to someone, they reveal themselves back, depending on, again, mm. it's got to be a safe place, I understand that. You really, truly understand mm. human beings. Well, that we're all pretty much the same. You know, again, Joseph Campbell talks about the monomyth, like we're all essentially living the same story. You can fill in the gaps. You know, one man's tragedy might be a suicide in the family, another man might just stub his toe. But, you know, whatever it takes to get you to that point, it's the same kind of trajectory, you know. And the next step on from kind of pigeonholing someone and not really understanding who they really are. It's like, I had a great line yesterday, which is something, because then we make up these stories about who this person is and that's how we treat them. And um, I, heard, I heard this lovely line yesterday, which is something like, the version of me that you've created in your own mind, I'm not responsible for. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And how many people, again, I can hear it every day where someone will say to me, preconceived idea they have of that person which completely rules out any potential conversation or interaction I might have with that person because I predetermined they look like or they think or they've done something or whatever you mm. don't know what's going on in that moment when no. you come across them if you don't know them or mm. even if you do know them perhaps why they're reacting in that way yeah there's a, there's a reason for all of that but well there's a lovely piece of research which was done and oh, I, hope I, I hope this isn't too clunky but they, they, they were looking at that and they were trying to study it and so what they did is they, they took a group of people and they told them that they had to be in a particular place for, for an important meeting 
at a certain time. And there was the distance between the hotel they were all staying at in this particular venue. And they strategically placed a homeless man or, or woman with a very compelling story halfway and they, just to notice who would stop. But what they did is, they, is they, they, get, they, they got them to leave the hotel with a very, very short time span to be at the venue. And they told them that there would be consequences if they didn't get to the venue on time. And what they did is they had another group of people who knew that these people had to traverse from point A to point B and to watch who stopped at the, at the, at the homeless person and then make a judgment about what they thought about that person. But what they weren't aware of was the, the, of the short time frame and the urgency of them needing to be in the venue. You see where I'm going. So a couple did stop and they were late. Some went through, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were bad people. They were just looking at their clock and, and then they looked at the opinions of the people. And they, you know, the people that didn't stop were, you know, arseholes. And just unaware of what else was surrounding that person in their day, but the fact they didn't stop made them a certain way. So it's like we, don't, we never understand the full picture. You know, someone cuts you off in traffic and you get angry at them, you know, just, and you miss your you know, first 30 seconds of you know, married at first sight or something, and you're very angry at that person, but what's going on for them? Like, why have they chosen to drive erratically? And it could be for good reason. Yet we've written it off as that we're more important. And then it comes back to compassion. Having compassion for other people Mm. and being able to try to understand that there's something going on. Or, you know, you can have a bad interaction with someone and you can be really upset and go to, you mentioned before, that little child that wants to get really angry and tell, as opposed to behaving like an adult mm. and reflecting and going, you know what, I, have underst- I need to have understanding for maybe there's other stuff going on for this person. Mm. That's why they reacted in that way. We'll try it through this lens. And this is the lens that I often get back to when I'm teaching some of my workshops. Bring it back to death. Like that person who just cut you off in traffic is going to die one day. They're going to lose everything that they have. They're going to go through enormous tragedies of, of, of ill health or whatever is in front of them. Um, and you've chosen to be angry at them because they, and so are you, by the way. And that very information that brings you together as, you know, travels on the road of life with all that weight to carry. And you've chosen to be angry at this person in the moment for cutting you off in traffic. I, you know, what, what I've said to people is if you decided to get out of the car with an open heart and have a conversation with that person coming from the same place, you would realize that you have so much more in common in terms of your hopes and dreams with that person than you do differences. You'd probably end up hugging them rather than punching them. But we don't allow ourselves to, to go there in the moment. It's all about, you know, because what's basically happening when someone cuts you off in traffic is that your ego has been offended. So you need to right that wrong. And that's just coming from a pure sense of ego. Like we can't transcend that at all in that moment, but can you do it? But there's so many layers within it. I remember going to see Eckhart Tolle and was talking about this idea of road rage. And he said, that's one thing. So, you know, next time someone pulls into um, the lane in front of you and you, you catch yourself, you think, all right, I'm feeling love. You know, I'm not going to uh, allow myself to get angry in this situation. And he says, and then the thought that comes in is, I'll allow you to, to, to move into my lane in front of me. And then he says, oh, it's your lane now, is it? <laughs> so there's still more layers to go. You know, it's like a never-ending process of just peeling back the onion. Even it is it's so true. But also, as you said, you pause, and I think that's so true. If you behave, an adult would pause and reflect on what, if you 
be able to do that as mm. opposed to a child who reacts instantly yeah. and responds with an emotion, a thought, a feeling, whatever it happens to be. Mm. And that's where you go down that horrible path of yeah. all these other things that could possibly... I try, I try to sit with it mm. and go, I'm an adult. Okay. <laughs> but the difference between an adult and a child is that a child allows themselves to feel their feelings. And that's okay. That's actually, we should become more childlike in that way. Because what would happen, and you will have seen this in your own kids, I certainly see it in mine, if they're feeling angry, it's like a tsunami. But, but then it's completely gone. Yes. And, and the difference with adults is we'll still be hanging on to that yes. shit tomorrow and the yes. next day and the next day and then it becomes a, a trauma that's you know, in, in, encased with shit in our hearts. Whereas the, 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 the kid just goes, Blah! and then it's completely done with and you'll probably never hear with it again. And so we, particularly us men, we need to learn how to feel our feelings. Like you need to learn how to manage them so that you don't break things, but at the same time, allow it to, 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 you know, to, to notice it and observe it and be there and to let it out. Because holding on to these things is how we create trauma. So kids are very good at expressing their emotions, but they're also extremely good at letting them go. Yeah, they are. I didn't think of it in that way, but you're absolutely right. Mm. And talking, so t- talking about trauma then, how did you, you've had traumatic events in your life. Mm. How did you deal at that time? You've had losses. Yep. Um, tell me how you dealt with the trauma of that. Yeah, very badly to begin with. Um, because as I said, you know, I had this enormous suit of armour that I've been walking around with, you know, successful in the corporate world and doing all this stuff because I was playing a role which wasn't really me, but I, was, I became very good at that. So when, you know, the universe came a knocking, which is, by the way, just to, as a lead up to this, I believe that if you're not living in your purpose, if you're not kind of on your path, the universe is constantly sending you messages to realign, to re, re, re you know, to, to correct. I believe that as you don't listen, that the noise gets louder and, and louder and louder. Um, so, you know, it might start off as a tickle under the chin, which most of us ignore then it's a punch in the face and then it's a total train wreck. And do you think mean like things go going wrong for you? Like things aren't happening for you, you might have money problems, stuff like that? Or oh, all these things, but there yeah. could be that or it could be other ways. But the universe, you know, if we sit down and we're still, which most people find very difficult, and we listen to what's coming in, the signs that we're being sent, oftentimes it's around just needing to recorrect your path to get in touch with your higher purpose and your true self. For me, I was off my purpose, you know. Um, the universe knocked and it started off as a light tap you know I didn't listen and in the end you know I was dealt some fairly severe blows and, and it worked you know I think you get the lesson from the universe at the level that you require it in order to motivate change you know for me you know, you know the first thing that happened was, was back in 2007 my younger sister took her own life and I was at that point you know working internationally and kind of not paying much attention to my family and not you know being a particularly way off my purpose let's put it that way um, in terms of where I am now and that was you know the first eye-opener for me you know because I was broken ripped in two you know my only sibling so I came back to Australia and, and you know started to do an awful lot of reassessing but didn't wasn't didn't make those fundamental changes like internally the heart was still closed and yeah and were you close to her yeah I was and did you have any sense at all looking back on there it was now? Some looking back, for sure, you know. But you sort of think to yourself, sure, sure, you know, that's not really happening. Like you have these mechanisms in place to kind of not hear what's being said or or, or, or the messages that are being sent. Again, like 
like we do with the universe. So yeah, in hindsight, for sure, no doubt. I still don't know whether or not, even if I had figured it out that I had any right to intervene, we certainly could have had conversations. At the end of the day, I believe that we have a right to live, so we have a right to die. I don't think you can separate the two, and we fight very hard for people's right to live. We don't seem to fight very hard for their right to die. And I don't think that it's, it's, it's just the same coin, two sides. Like, you can't separate the two things. Life and death are not, you know, there's no, no difference. It's the same thing. When she died, how did you, what did you, how did you process it? Well, I didn't really, um, for a long time. And did you, and did that take you down of, a bad path? Of yeah. Things you were, so yeah. Just what did you, oh, it just kind of numbed me out more. Like, I just was, I was just a bit disillusioned and confused and angry and sad and, like lots of emotions, which meant that I just shut myself off even more in the beginning from, from everything that was going on and just sort of buried myself in, in my, my, my previous ways. But, I, but, you know, if I looked closely, there was some softening happening. I just wasn't, wasn't aware of it at the time. But then if we fast forward a couple of years later, uh, my mum had been very sick with, with cancer. And she decided to take her own life as well, end her own suffering, which I completely understand. Did she tell you she was going to do that, or she just did it? It was it was telegraphed. To so, yeah. so um, and I can't really get into too many details about that. But did you have? Well, I suppose what I'm asking is, did you have time to process what was going to happen yeah, as opposed to? Well, it was going to happen one way or another. Yeah, true. So true. I think we, you know, every you know the family and the friend, we were all. It, it was all a direction that things were taking, regardless of, of how it exactly played out. So, um, and did you see it was as again I kind of go like oh, woe is me I can't believe this is happening to me why the hell yeah there was a lot of that and I think it's really interesting you use that phrase because I did often say I can't believe this is happening to me and that's where the fracture happens because you literally can't and so therefore how do you show up in life when you actually it feels make believe but then it, it and I don't know if you, you maybe you talk about this but did you think of taking your own life because yep. it got so bad you went I can't, I can't how much can I handle you know, I, you're a human, you know, how yeah. much, particularly given what you said you were, you were at in, in your own mind and space at that time, mm. to be able to take on two people very close to you, that's, I yeah, can't even um, comprehend that. Yeah, it, 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 well, I'd already had suicidal thoughts leading up to that. I remember having my first suicidal ideation when I was around 15 or 16. So um, for, to me, it's just that the noise around that possibility became very loud. Uh, after my mum and my sister. And was that, so was that a genetic thing then? If you talk about your sister and, and your mum and you, is that like a, is a family kind of, I mean, how do you? I think it's, it's, you know, it's a combination of lots of different things. Um, you know, I think it's the experiences that they had, which are far outside their genetics. I think there's a lovely saying that it cuts across not only our experiences, but also our physical health. And that is that, uh, Genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. I think you need both those things kind of working in concert. So our genes give us a certain kind of way that things are going to unfold to a certain degree, but whether they manifest or not is our environment. And that could be, you know, everything from pollution triggering a chink in your armour, your genetic armour to create cancer, or it could be traumatic events around domestic abuse or anything which, which trigger a mental process. So when I, when I hear that line, you know, genes load the gun, environment pulls the trigger, I think about lots of things because environment can also be your mental state, your inner environment. So I really believe that that's a very profound statement, but it also unlocks this thought that many people have that they're, 
their lifespan's going to be dictated by their genes. Not necessarily. I think you need the two things in place. Because we know with epigenetics now that you can actually start to change which genes are being switched on or off within us. So you can actually start to biohack your own genetic code through mindset and through the environment that you place yourself mm-hmm. in. And that, can envi- that environment also includes nutrition and everything. So, yeah, we, we have much more um, agency than we think we have. And so going back to that time, what made you not take your own life? And if you said it was just so, what was the, if it was, I can't even comprehend what that would mm. be like. Do you remember now looking back on um, it? I mean, in those times, it was probably um, fear about actually going through with it. Like the actual physical aspects of it. Like, you know, actually doing that. And then there was a sense of guilt because I was like, well, if my mother and my sister have the intestinal fortitude to take that physical act then that just makes me feel even worse about myself the fact that I'm too scared to do it you know but in more recent times lots of reasons to live, like you know infinite amount of reasons to stay alive just to name one my son I mean you know no way yeah 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 I totally get that so that's just and that's just one yeah yeah so you know I think it's 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 I, I don't mind going through the process of having those thoughts. And it's quite interesting when I run men's workshops, I look around the room, one of the things that I might say in, in an opening gambit is how many, how many of you guys have thought about taking your own life? And nearly every hand in the room goes up every time. So it's quite interesting just to, just to see, you know, I mean, Plato said the only decision that we make moment to moment in life is whether or not to commit suicide. And if the answer is no, then go and live fully. Because if you're not doing that, then go for it. But he really said that's really the only thing that you need to choose in a given moment. And why do you think that people, men, have that? So many men have that thought. Uh, You've had it, I've had it, I've yeah, noticed yeah. I've had it, I've had yeah. it. Yeah, well I think it's largely because part of the masculine energy is needing to fix everything. And I think that suicide seems like a great fixing solution. Hey, if I'm no longer here, the problem's fixed because they see themselves as the problem. Mm-hmm. So if I remove myself from the planet, I remove the problem. So that's my way of fixing. So if I've run out of all other options available to me to fix things, then that's the thing that I'm left with in terms of that fixer mentality. Now, you know, to get past that, you've got to understand that not everything needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Some things can just be left just the way they are and you just have to surrender to that even though they may appear broken to you it's fine that they're broken and if you can start to come at it with that mentality which is you know dropping some of those masculine traits then it's okay just the way it is you know life is perfectly imperfect that's um, a great line <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's the fixer mentality and that brings a lot of relationships undone too because you know a woman comes to her man and she's got all these issues and he just wants to fix them and most of the time it's not about the fixing it's just about the listening you know and if I look at it from an archetypal point of view we want to constantly bring our warrior into battle it's like what can I do who do I need to punch in order to you know make you feel all right to fix the situation and 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 your partner is just saying I don't need you to fix anything I just need you to listen to my issues and to really hear me I have so many men that come to see me and you say, uh, they've come from a, a relationship breakdown. And the man will say, I never saw it coming. 
And the woman will say, I've been telling him for years. I've heard that. I thought if I did a podcast with somebody who said exactly the same thing. It's so common. And that's because we're just trying to fix, 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 fix instead of actually hearing what's going on. And interesting, I talk about my own experience. I try, I'm absolutely typical male, fix, fix, fix. Mm. And I try to fix her to be the way I thought she should be because I believed that I was mm. more evolved than she was. Mm. Therefore, listen to me, mm. I can help you on this path mm. to be. But she didn't want to be. Yeah, I know what's best for you. Yes. That one. So yes. just do what I say. Yeah, come on, right, you look at yeah. yeah, and she didn't, yeah. she needed something else from me that I wasn't mm. giving her. Yeah. Arrogant much? Possibly, yes. Yeah, I mean, you, we're divorced now, but no, yeah. Yep, yeah, here's the yeah. thing. I'm divorced too. Now we're separated. Um, you need to own your own shit as a man. I think that's the first step in the process. If you want to manifest change in your life, if you're not happy, you know, David Foster Wallace called it the gnawing sensation in your gut that something isn't right, even if you don't know what that thing is. You've actually got to look inwardly and actually take responsibility for, for your own shit, which you've created. And not stop blaming everybody else or blaming circumstance and go, actually, this is me. And the only way I can change this is by changing me, you know? So if it's that fixer mentality or something else, it's like, stop doing that. Because clearly it's not working. And, and I can't blame my partner. I can't blame my work colleagues. or I can't blame the world. I've got to actually say, this is my shit. And it starts from there. I bet that's the hardest work to do, to own your own shit. It is, but it's where it all begins. No, I completely agree with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even from my own experience, I do that, and I try to, and I yeah. move forward, and I believe in the right way, but there are times, clearly, when I don't do that. Of and course. And there are lots of men who don't do that at all, of who course. own their own shit. It's always someone else's fault, and people live their lives that way. 100%. 100%. And, uh, and they end up very angry, very yes. frustrated, and all too often dead at their own hand. Yeah. Yeah, it's frightening, and the work is never done. Like, it's not like I'm sitting here going, I've got it all sorted. I have it. I'm still doing all the things that I, I, I shouldn't. But I'm getting better at catching myself. That's the trick. Day by day, I feel like I'm getting better at, at catching myself. You um, mentioned it before, so how do you, given anxiety and depression, the things that have come up for you when you talked about as a child, now, do, they, do you still have to deal with depression and anxiety? And if you do, how do you deal with those? 100%. 100% I do. It's part of me yeah and I have to learn to love those dark parts as much as I love the rest of me in itself is part of the trick because when these things come in it's like it's okay I can put my arms around how I'm feeling I've been there before you know I know what to do and I just honor that part of myself and I love it as much as I love the other parts you know it's like we, we, we all have this fascinating way of showing up where we tend to just love the lovable bits if you think about it in a relationship, you've sort of chosen the bits of the person that you're with to love, and when the other bits show up, you hate them. I hate it when you do that. Well, then you don't love them unconditionally. You've got to love all of them. And I've been with men, and you know, their partner is acting in a certain way, which is maybe not conducive to a good relationship, and, and when it's pointed out, they'll laugh, and they'll be like, yeah, she can do that. And you can see and feel in them, it doesn't matter, they still love that bit of themselves, of that person as well and you need to be the same with yourself so if I was you know reject the part of the, the, the depression and the anxiety that sits inside me then I would go down very quickly you know as Alan Watts used to say it's kind of like when you're drowning the more you fight against drowning the quicker you'll drown and the only way to not drown is to actually do nothing at all and then you won't drown well you know 
at least you'd have less of, less chance of that mm. so yeah and, and us men we try to forcefully fix situations um, when oftentimes just being still and the, the water will settle again he says too many men are trying to in that example like what do you do with water if you want it to be still or you just leave it alone well he would say most men would try to iron it flat <laughs> which only which only exists which only you know makes it more choppy yes mm. and so would you you talked before about uh, being comfortable with your own space mm. would you say you were lonely no um, I'd say I used to be desperately lonely now I kind of I like my and I don't I wouldn't call it loneliness I'd call it solitude and I think there's a great that solitude is a great gift you know and it's in those times that I can really um, I, I'm totally comfortable now in my solitude you know I love there's certain things that I love to do when I'm by myself and I'm always taken back to a, a 15th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal and he said that all of man's problems emanate from his inability to sit still alone in a room I think it's true because all of us we, we you know if you sit still you start to examine what's the contents of your mind and you generally don't like what you find so we're constantly looking for distraction but I'm of the view that sit with that stuff you don't like and and it will be okay and you might learn something about yourself you know you go on a 10-day silent vipassana or something like that and you spend the first six days just recoiling at what's going on in your mind and then the last four days just in bliss See, I've never done that, and mm. I've heard people say what well, you've said, and I've gone, oh, I don't think I could, I'm sure I could, but I tell myself that story that I can't, so I don't do it. Well, to me, yeah, right. So I, I, when, when I hear I can't, I'm always, it could be, could, could be a reason to do it, because, you know, you're scared of something. There's something in there which is going to trigger you, and you need to get past that point. But, you know, I can't, we do a lot of cold water therapy here, chucking people in the ice, and you know, there's lots of benefits around that. It's like when it's people... Like yeah, the Wim Hof stuff. So I'm oh, a Wim Hof yeah. instructor too. Yeah. So it's like, you know, if someone says to me, there's no way I could do that. And my immediate thought is, there's every reason you should if you have such resistance to it. There's clearly something in there. Like, this is your ego fighting for survival right now when I hear that from you. Like, you know, when, when you say, oh, I don't know if I could do it with passion I'm like, well, Dan's ego is is, is going, I'm, I'm under threat. Yes. If he does this. So I'm going to make sure that I'm going to put up every single barrier towards you doing that because you know, I need to stay alive here. And so, and that's basically what happens, or at least my way of, of talking about it, a passion is it's sort of like you get to this point when you get so sick and tired of your pattern of thinking. It's almost like, have you ever heard a song that's been on the radio too much and like, and it comes on again and you're like, I, you could literally like rip the radio out of your car and throw it out the window. Yeah. That's the point you get to. It's like, I'm so tired of my own shit. It's like, if I hear this song one more time, I swear to God, I'm going to implode. And then you realize it's like, I've just got to change the station. It's like, I can do that, you know? Yes. And so I follow Bruce Lipton a little bit. He says, most of us, we shout at the CD player to change the track. You know, and we get so frustrated and he goes, and then we realize we've just got to step up from the couch and go and do it ourselves. <laughs> and we spend our lives going, I can't stand this music. It's <laughs> so true. It's really true. It is just noise. It's just noise, you know. And, but it's interesting, I have, I've really tried to, I got to that point where enough was enough. And I was fed up with it. And I, don't get me wrong, of course I go to that place where that voice 
we talked about it before that that's the the self-talk that voice that damning the, the self-critical voice it's, it's so powerful and it's held me back in so many ways in my life but I've got to the point now I've gone I've gone enough mm. I, I can't I can't I don't want to go on like this anymore and that's really important because it means that's waking up that's essentially the definition of waking up because most people think that voice that noise that's it that's life like it's literally the way things are that's not the real you is it's talked about before it's that's the ego isn't it it's not who you are no. and that will always be there you would learn to hear it and get past it well you know i mean i could go down lots of different ways to explain that but you know essentially that think about yourself there's an observer behind those thoughts like who's witnessing those thoughts that's who you are you're not the thoughts yes yeah, yeah, yeah. You, and, and we can easily close our eyes and come to a quick you can feel it you can see it you can yeah, that behind those thoughts something is, is bearing witness to it all yeah and and that's that's the real you you know you can talk about it and the weather is a good example it's like if it's a big storm what we notice is the storm we caught up in the storm but what's what's really there behind the storm is the sky and that's who you really are and the storm will come and the storm will go even if you do nothing at all but the sky will always be there and the sky is always big enough to to hold whatever weather is there and whatever weather is there is always not permanent so you know when we have anger in our lives for example as men we tend to operate as if we will always be angry like that this feeling that i'm feeling is permanent so we quit our jobs or we yell at someone or because it's always going to be like this and then we regret it because the next day the storm's gone and we've done all these actions which are irreversible yes so we need to remind ourselves that even in the heat of that moment that this is temporary you know, and when the and when the storm goes and the blue sky comes back, don't be left with the actions that you've created in the storm because you thought it was a permanent situation. Yes, that's so true and so easy to do. Exactly mm. that. And I've mm. done that myself. I'm sure other people have. But yeah, and it goes back to the fixing mentality. Like you need to fix everything that the storm's created, but oftentimes, if you just leave it, it'll fix itself. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's a lovely line from again from Robert Bly: "Immediately do nothing." Which is, yeah, I totally get that. I think that's so important. So I said to you before about just sitting with something mm. and just pausing and not, mm. not reacting straight away because mm. that's often going to be a mistake because you'll mm. say something that you don't mean or do something that you don't. How many of us have written that email oh, yeah. and then sent it and then gone, oh, shit, I shouldn't have sent that. Yeah, yeah. So maybe even if you draft it up and go, I might actually sit on this until tomorrow before I hit send. Yeah. Mm. Go back to, I'm interested in, in, you said you meet every week with the men and you have a men's group. What, what, what comes up in that group and, and, what, and how powerful is that as a, for, for people listening, the men who aren't in men's group, we don't understand what a men's group is. What yep. would you say is the power of, of um, and you have mentioned it a bit before. Yeah, well look, it's interesting because the, 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 the genesis of, of, of the first men's circle that I started to run was, I was hearing from more and more people that there wasn't a good space to meditate for men it was simply they would go into a space and it was oftentimes overtly feminine you know because it would probably be a yoga studio or something run by some some women and they'd go in and there'd be you know flowers and, and scents and all these things and then they'd sit in the room and there'd be a, a female yoga teacher and 90 percent of the room was female and all of a sudden they're, they're just not feeling like they can 
open up and let go and kind of go into the practice. Not to mention the fact that other thoughts come in when you're in a room surrounded by lots of women in leotards and the, so it's hard to kind of get centered and that's okay too. You're allowed to feel that. That's part of being a man. But so sometimes the distraction is, is, is not a good thing when you're trying to do a certain thing for yourself, right? I hope I'm making sense. Mm-hmm. And so, so initially this group started up where we were just meditating together in a, in a sort of men's only environment to try to remove some of those distractions and just feel that we could actually sit in our masculinity and we were doing I guess what would be called masculine centered meditation practice like it was around you know feeling into that deep sense of, of your own masculinity and, and from that it kind of organically just evolved into sharing circles where you know because people would you know you'd arrive and they'd be like how are you doing like it would just it just organically became more of a sharing circle and in the end that, that was kind of formalized so yeah, it's just a, a beautiful group of men, which, you know, I think at last count, that original group has touched probably around 150 guys now in Melbourne over the last couple of years. Wow. Um, it sits with a core group of about 25 because I think any more than that, you don't get heard. Some people would even argue that that's too many and they, they could be right, but there's a, there's a need. Yeah, it, it's kind of evolved into that. And, you know, we've been together for a long time, some of us guys, and I've had, you know, messages from some of these men saying, you know, if I hadn't have found this group, I potentially might not be here today. It's been amazing. And even the guys that don't come and sit regularly, like I've heard from them, in times of darkness, just knowing that there's a group of guys that are meeting on a Tuesday night, kind of, and as their proxy or, or on behalf of all men that have been touched by that group, it gave them the strength and the resilience to, to keep going. So it's gotten to the point where you don't even need to physically be there to feel the effects. Yes. Yeah, and no, I completely, as <coughs> I said to you before, I'm in a men's group. Mm. And the power of the group is profound. It's changed my life and helped me down this journey of being more open and vulnerable and listening and feeling more comfortable with who I am. Mm. Yeah, it's extraordinary, the, the power of... I, I think men, if you look at all the... Like I spent a bit of time in Africa and in northern Kenya with the, the Samburus, and it's innate in most of these ancient, older cultures. The men will spend time together you know the women do it innately they just they, they do it intuitively i guess the men they do in these older cultures but it's kind of been knocked out of us i guess we're kind of reclaiming the old ways and oftentimes as i said a lot of men have, have not had the rites of passage and not had the initiations to go from boy to man you know oftentimes a man's initiation into manhood is when someone puts a baby in their arms and they're like holy shit and I, I need to step up and be responsible and, and, and I'm a man now. But they've skipped all this stuff that should have happened so that they were prepared for that moment earlier on, right? But then as I've heard this from a therapist who's told me that unless you properly move, if you've got trauma from childhood, if you haven't dealt with that, you'll, you'll be stuck there. You won't become an adult, you'll be a child. Yeah, and you need to kill it off. And that's why a lot of these older cultures, they take the boys away from the village and something quite extreme happens with the elders in the village. And when they are welcomed back into the village by the women, they're seen as a man in that village. They can make decisions that impact the, the, the community as a man. So they've literally killed the boy off. And oftentimes that's quite quite drastic in terms Sounds of- Sounds extreme, but I, yeah, but I think d- that's- Depending what the cultural rights are of a particular um, tradition. But you know, that's we don't have any of that stuff here. So what you get is a bunch of man children 
that you know they're, they're kind of boys in 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 men's bodies and i think that goes a long way to explaining what's going on with the patriarchy i actually don't believe that it's healthy masculinity at play here i think it's actually just boys and the one thing that's most interesting is boys there's not only the, the, the you know the boy in the man suit not only is he is he has he got an issue with women but he's also got an issue with healthy men so i think that the healthy men should be equally as i guess concerned about the patriarchy as as women and if you look at certain people that are in power in certain countries you can see the issue they have not only with women but also with healthy men i think that's so true and i look mm. at people that i know and how many of them are still boys who are just in a in an adult's body it's yeah just, and so many and could we call that maybe not patriarchy but maybe more fratriarchy yeah, <laughs> or some yeah, other, there's yeah, probably yeah. some other word yeah, which is actually true as well yeah. it's probably some there's probably a better word to explain what's really going on here we're all at peril healthy men and women with this situation yeah going back to religion what religion would you identify as being you mentioned your mother was jewish i think i've probably cultivated my own to be yeah. to be honest i think interestingly enough later in life i've dug back into my jewish heritage and i'm finding great great beauty in doing that like spending time with a, a mentor of mine a rabbi and um, just listening to the old wisdom really rings true for me and I don't know whether that's because I've kind of carried that down through my through my lineage that it, that it, it, it makes sense to me like the echoes are still are still there through the, into the past so I'm, I'm loving that experience and so I read up a lot about it particularly interested in, in the mystical side of Judaism the, the Kabbalah and, and I find and there's all these meditation practices in there which are quite beautiful and like I'm really uncovering some some beautiful gold so yeah, you know, I mean, but I've, I've, I've gone down the Buddhist path quite a bit, so you know, maybe you could call me a Jubu. But, <laughs> like that process. Yeah, but, but would you, why would you say, do you, do you, if I asked you why you think you were born Jewish then, mm. why would you say you... Why I think I was? Yeah. Do you have any... any I have no idea how to answer no, that question. Okay. I, I, um, I'm sure I could probably answer it if I contemplated it a bit longer, yeah, but it's, okay. it's, it's, I mean, there's, yeah. It feels, it resonates with me, not all of it, but the parts that do, really do, if that makes sense. Yes. Mm. Someone else makes I'm Jewish as well. Right. That question. You were born Jewish for a reason. And I'm curious to understand why. Well, I go back to what I said in the beginning <coughs> around, I don't think anything's for a reason. I think you, can choose, yeah. you choose to give it one. So if I want to choose to give a reason to why I was born Jewish, that would be me doing that. Um, and we'll be doing that in a way which would be of benefit to me moving forward. Okay, that's good. It's given me a different way of looking at it. Yeah. But you see, the funny thing is that when we go, when we say that and we're anti something, it's still Very. impacting how you live. Because yes. Because you're choosing not to. So, for example, I often get, the father discussion comes up an awful lot in men's groups, as I'm sure you, you're aware, right? It seems to be a particular... There's a draw to, to that around pain and wounds that need addressing. Often I hear men say, well, I did learn from my father. You know, I freed myself from my father's wounds because I'm doing everything that he didn't do, which means that that's how I show up in life because everything he did was shit. So if I do the opposite, then I'll be okay. And my point to that is he's still dictating your life because you're choosing not to do those things. 
So therefore, you may think that you've freed yourself from him, but it's no different than doing them because he's dictating your actions one way or the other. Yes. So you need to be free to, to show up in life however you want to be. And if you're not doing it, it's the same as doing it because he's in charge still. Absolutely. Yeah. All you're doing is shifting the perspective of how you look at something. That's right. That's right. And there may be some traits in your father that you need to get access to. And a big one is anger. Like people say, I, I meet very meek men who've decided to show up that way in life because their fathers are very angry and violent. But they've cut themselves off from a primary fuel source. Like you need, you need to be able to manage it well. But anger is an important motivator. You know, and to me, the best anger is when you can be angry at someone but still hold them in love. And then you don't transgress that line into violence or belittling or, or you know mm-hmm. and it's pos- it's very possible to hold those two things in your hand because sometimes anger a little them seeing a little bit of anger in you is what they need to get up off their ass or do something but you can still do it in a way which is extremely loving they're not diametrically opposed you either come anger flares up with an underlying of, of two things either fear or love yeah so if you do anger with love yeah, and it's interesting. You, the way yeah, and it's interesting you say that because I'm ne- I never get angry mm. because my mother was very angry. Right. So I didn't like the how I felt as a consequence of how she was to me. Yeah. So I, you will never see me get angry. Yeah, right. And interesting what you're saying now. I'm thinking about that and going, mm. okay, maybe I push it away mm. too much. Yeah. My question to you, Dan, my brother, would be, what's your fuel source? Like, what, mm. what, you know, where's that? You know, you've got to rage for something. Like I choose to rage for love, but where, you know, what are you drawing on here to, to give you that, I'm just the passion to get up and the drive and the willpower to just get out there and make a dent in the universe. And you may, you know, a lot of times if you're cutting yourself off from that, you know, it came out as shadow in your mother or your father, but if you do it properly, you still need the same fuel source. Mm-hmm. You've just got to use it differently. Yeah. And that's interesting. Cause I, as I said, seen it in a certain way mm. because how it affected me. That's very childlike. Yeah, you know? you've seen it as quote unquote bad. Yes. And it's not necessarily bad. It was expressed badly. Yes. But in and of itself, it's not bad. No, that's exactly right. And so mm. that's helped. Thank you for that. <laughs> I shifted something because it has. I, I said yeah. that's, I don't know what that, but I believe that. I need to think about it more. But mm. yeah. How have you dealt with your own mortality? How do you reconcile that you're going to die? Six weeks after mum died, I got diagnosed with cancer. Diagnosed with a, with a rare blood cancer, which is an incurable variant. I guess it's kind of like a cousin of leukaemia. It's not, not, it doesn't fall into the leukaemia category, but it's related. You know, I was faced with death you know, very directly um, in the sense of losing, two, losing my sister and then my mum quickly one after the other and then literally being confronted with my own mortality right afterwards. So I did what any normal person would do. I had a complete and utter nervous breakdown. Ended up in the Melbourne clinic for a little while. So I couldn't deal with it. But I think that was because I didn't have a good understanding of, of what was really going on. And through that process, you know, I think I've completely readdressed my relationship with death. And, you know, oftentimes I throw the question out there to, to people I'm working with. It's like, you know, what is your relationship with death? Because particularly most men will say, yeah, 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 I've got that under control, you know, I, I get it. But they don't really. Like underneath that is, it's just bullshit. 
and a lot of their fears are being driven by that. But, you know, I think the key point here is to just see death as a great teacher. I mean, if I'm relating to you right now, Dan, and I'm thinking that, you know, we're both going to die, I'm going to treat you in a very different way than if I, would, I just brushed that whole concept under the, under the carpet. You know, I'm going to not leave things unsaid. I'm going to do lots of things. And subconsciously, we have to remind ourselves that we're almost on a moment-by-moment basis having a relationship with death. You know, when I stopped across the road and look right and look left, what am I doing? Um, and I think that we, we, we don't understand that subconsciously we just, we're constantly in a conversation with death and we're basically trying to survive. But it's all happening beneath the surface. So mm. all I'm suggesting is not that every single moment needs to be this profound gesture because I mightn't be here the moment after. It's just an awareness that, you know, life is limited and I don't know when and I don't know how, but I'm going to die. And, 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 and that's just a fact. Um, and you can either choose to be afraid of that or you can choose to see that as, as, as a great teacher. There's a beautiful man named Frank Ostaseski in an amazing book called The Five Invitations. And he calls death the teacher hiding in plain sight. Mm. And it's so true. Mm. It's yes. so true. Yeah. So I just kind of look at it that way. You can, yeah, pretend... Because most of us distract ourselves from that through anything we possibly can. Well, um, I'll tell you that I'm going to live until I'm... And I may well do this. I'm going to live until I'm 95, 100. That's yeah. what I believe. Yeah, but it's a ha- what on earth is giving you the right to believe that? Exactly, like, as I said, I've told myself yeah. that story. It's how I process death. I'm not. Yeah. I'm very cool with dying because I'm going to live a very good life, a very long life. It's great. You mightn't get home tonight. But yeah, but no, that's no, what I'm no, saying no, to no, you. No, no, Dan, I wouldn't wish that upon you. But it's no, but, I'm not, but, you're but right. These things are absolutely true. And for me, you know, having to live with a cancer is putting that teacher in sight all the time. But I'm no different from anybody else on the planet in the fact that I still don't know when or how or. I'm going to die, which is no different. People often say to me, how can you live when, 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 when you know, your days are numbered? And I'm like, how do you do it? <laughs> you know? And I, I remember reading an article saying, it was a Huffington Post article, and it was basically what you would change in your life if you knew you only had a certain amount of time left to live. And I'm like, well, you're in that situation. So what changes are you going to make? <laughs> like, we're all in it together. You know, I'm certainly not the next 51-year-old man in Melbourne who's going to die. The difference between me and him is that he's not going to recognise it. Like, you know, he's going to maybe have an argument with his wife and leave for work angry and not come home. I'm not going to do that because I'm aware that when I leave someone, I need to leave them in the best possible way that I can because it may be the last time that I see them. And, you know, one day I'll be proven right. We have a lovely saying in Australia, see you soon. Pretty presumptuous when you think about it. It is. But it shows... when you think about it. Yeah, it shows that underneath, in the subconscious, we're not dealing with with death. So I'm always like, if there's something better than you can say, then see you soon. And I remember, I remember talking to this rabbi, and this was early days. I used to teach meditation at this particular synagogue. And I had a, a, a little half an hour private consult with him, and we were sharing some things. And it was literally like a three hour gap between me coming back in to teach and I would have seen him again. And as we left, I said, see you soon. Because it was just three hours. And he looked at me, he caught my eyes and there was this long, felt like long, it was probably just three or four seconds silence. And he just said, God willing. 
And I realized in that moment that he understood everything that I'm talking about here. It was just built in, you know, that he was showing up in life with that understanding at all times. And, and so for me, you know, to be living with, this, with, 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 with a health condition that, you know, could potentially end my life sooner than it would have otherwise, it's just, it just highlights, it's just, it's just fleshing out this teacher that we all have. And I see my cancer as a great blessing sometimes in helping me show up in the world in, in, in a much better way than I would otherwise. Mm. Think about how it fuels my relationship with my son, for example, like my son's five. And I often say in death meditations um, and death workshops that I do, sometimes I will look at my son playing on the ground and feel deeply into the fact that he's going to die one day. And people go, you know what the reaction to that is? They normally, you can't think like that. So, because it's a horrible thought and it's like, well, is it? Or does it make me want to love that child in the moment so intensely that it's a beautiful thing? But it comes down to perspective. Yeah. Or I can just pretend otherwise. And what resilience have I got if something does happen to him? If I've totally ruled that out as an option. And picking up on that point then, do you think that helped you when, I don't know where you were at maybe, when you were diagnosed with cancer, mm. having lost your mum and your sister, yeah. were you able to deal with that? Although you tell me you weren't, no, that's, mm. I don't know the answer you just told me, you mm. had to have a nervous breakdown. Yeah. You obviously weren't. Mm. But was there some part of you that got through that journey, perhaps because you were able to? Well, I think that part of me is what got me past the <coughs> point of, yeah. of breaking down and into who I am now because I was left with a blank canvas you know something to say. and then to, to build from there is, is that part of me is the part that was that transcended all of that and was there in the background I just couldn't and access so what it did, what did you do so what if you look back on it now I'm interested in what did you do that got you through do you remember what did you turn what did you turn to what did you oh, it was on? meditation that was the, that was the, the key were you meditating thing. before that not really so what made you just recognise or someone said to you oh you should meditate yeah well, I can't even remember what exactly what the trigger was but you know I fell into a meditation practice you know just to kind of kind of get to exist I don't know like I was grabbing I was grasping at straws at that point and then I found the more I did that the more I was able to kind of find something in me internally everything just kind of flowered from there I got back in touch with myself and started to understand and and then you know I felt the need to kind of share that experience of meditation I became a teacher, a meditation teacher, and, and you know, the rest is kind of history. Yeah, needed to be down in those depths. And again, we come back to, we circle back to this idea of, of men needing that tragedy mm. in their lives to break them. Well, that's, mm. that was mine. I broke them to the point of ending up in a psych ward and then, you know, building up from that place. So I think in this society, we're told that, you know, we, we, we want to go up all the time. You know, we want, we, want, we want peak experiences and we do that through buying things and no one sort of says, you've got to actually scrabble around in the dirt a little bit in order to, in order to, because once you understand the depths of this sorrow, it's only then that you can reflect when you're happy because you have some benchmark against what that doesn't look like. And so otherwise we're kind of, it's, it's, it's vapor. Yes. You know? So I often say to the guys, you have to learn how to swim in the dirt before you can walk on the water. And it's, again, the same. I think I said it before, but this guy who I met the other day, he'd been through awful, and he mm. said, you have to go through, men have to go through something awful in order to want to make 
that change to be yeah. different. But it's the something. I'm against that. But <laughs> it's yeah. the something awful where you learn the gift yes. that when you come back up, you can share. And that's the same for me. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I, I Robert Bly has this wonderful saying: "Show me a man's wound, and I'll show you where his genius lies." And I think that's spot on the money. It is completely. Mm -hmm. I can speak my own experiences. I can say precisely that. I mm -hmm. had a bad experience and I've become a different person as a result of mm. that. I've learned from that. Mm. It's taken me to a, where I am now. Mm. Yeah, it's, 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 it's universally true. Yeah. But we don't allow ourselves to go down into the... Interestingly enough, Robert Bly calls it ashes work. <laughs> and so I feel like I've done plenty of ashes work. It's kind of like a, another little tick next to... He calls it that because he, he reflects on the story of Cinderella. And he says that she had to clean the ashes out of the fireplace before she could go to the ball. And he said too many of us bypass, you know, getting blackened by the soot and, 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 and you know, coughing and spluttering our way through cleaning out our own fireplaces. And interestingly enough, if you think about the word half, it's very close to heart. Mm. So I see it as heart work. And once that work is done, then we go to the ball with our gifts. And looking beautiful. I like and that. And finding our mm. chosen one, etc. Mm. That's powerful. It really is. Yeah. 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 Not mine. Can't claim it. No, but. Sounds great. Yeah. I think that's a good place to start. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to More Real. I truly hope you've enjoyed the experience and that you will continue to be here to explore real life with me. If you have, please tell anyone you know about More Real. I love creating a space for real conversations. So if you know anyone who would want to be on this podcast, please email me at morereal1, one is spelt O-N-E, at gmail.com. Once again, morereal1 at gmail.com. I'm very grateful as always for your support.